Welcome to Saving Grace Church, located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Our mission at Saving Grace is to love God, love others, and reach the world for Christ. We hope that this message brings you closer to God and helps strengthen your walk with Christ. Try again. Good morning, everyone. Very good. The only time I, I usually am called Joseph, well, really, it doesn't happen anymore, is when I was in trouble when I was young. But my name is Joseph Michael Ryer. Uh, growing up, all my aunts and uncles called me Joey. So when I go home, everybody calls me Joey. But please don't do that. Not, it's not my preference. I love it when my aunts and uncles do it. Uh, college students and young adults, we have a lunch for you today just to uh, let you know that we are so glad that you are in the church. So that'll be right after church today. Head out the main doors, hang it right into the cafe, and I believe walking tacos are on the menu. Even if you have a few minutes, just stop by. We want to feed you and let you know that we are glad that you are part of this church. Let's pray. And if you have a Bible before we pray, you can open to Matthew chapter 12. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just a beautiful day that we have today. We thank you that it's another day that you have made. Thank you that we get to gather um, as your people. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help me to, to faithfully preach your word. And Holy Spirit, we pray you would bring light to your word and you give us grace to apply your word. And we would encounter you through your word. And I pray specifically that you would strengthen our confidence in Jesus this morning. That no matter what we go through or what happens in life, uh, we would be so confident in who you are as revealed in your word. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 12, or verses 22 through 50. We'll get there in a moment. But I want to begin by reading um, a portion of an introduction to a book by a woman named Amy uh, Taylor. She writes the following in her book introduction, The Divided Family in the Civil War. She writes this, Abraham Lincoln warned in 1858 that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Then she writes, we, we need not reach far into the vast library of Civil War history to find evidence of divided families. The, the idea that two brothers or a father and a son or a husband and a wife could assume opposing stances in the war has both captivated and perplexed scholars, writers of fiction and filmmakers since the first shots were fired over Fort Sumter. The introduction goes in to describe some of the famous people that you might know throughout history who had spouses on, on different sides of the Civil War. And obviously for our country, the stakes were very high for the Civil War, but you can imagine how difficult it would be if you were on one side of the war and someone very close to you was on, on the other. The reason I wanted to start with that is this morning we're going to see that Jesus is going to draw a line in the sand. And he's going to really ask us the question, whose side are you on? 
See, the stakes were high in the Civil War, but the stakes, spiritually speaking, are much, much, much higher. Last week, Dave did a great job introducing some of the themes and ideas of chapter 12, and one of the verses he read was this, as he introduced one of one group of Jesus' enemies named the Pharisees. They are the religious leaders. And, and he did a good job because sometimes we think they're the bad guys, but if we're honest, sometimes we are them and we're, we're like them. But in this case, they, they were not pleased with Jesus by any means. And, and this is what Matthew wrote. But the Pharisees, they went out and they conspired against him, against Jesus, to destroy him. See, as the book of Matthew is capturing Jesus' life and ministry as the time and age and years are going by, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the, basically the Jewish religious leaders and governing council, were gr- growing more brazen, more um, defiant in their opposition to Jesus. They were really enemy number one for Jesus. Now, spiritually in the Bible, there, there's lots of enemies that that Jesus or Christians can have. We have, um, we'll put the Pharisees into the man-centered, self-righteous religious group. That's an enemy of the good news of Jesus. Satan and his demons, they are enemies of Jesus. Our own sinful cravings and desires that we inherited from Adam, Adam and Eve, they are enemies of Jesus. And in this passage... We're going to see that we are in a spiritual war and we must choose initially and in an ongoing way who we're going to give our allegiance to. And Jesus is the only trustworthy one to give our allegiance to. So we're going to work through the remainder of chapter 12 today. Um, I am going to spend a little bit more time on point number one. There are five points, so don't panic. I'm aware of that. And then the last four are going to come kind of rapid fire. You believe me? Yeah. Okay. Some do, some don't. <laughs> the new, those of you who are new, you believe me. Those of you who have been around for a while, you're, you're wondering. I will try my best. We are in a spiritual war. Why is this so important? Why is it so important to know whom our allegiance is given to? Point number one, our belief and trust in Jesus is paramount, is of first importance to our salvation. Our belief and trust in Jesus is paramount to our salvation. Look at verse 22 and 23. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. So this is a man who was blind and he could not speak. And the cause seems to be demons or is demons. He was brought to him and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. So That's a big deal. He couldn't see. He was blind. He couldn't speak. Demons were oppressing him. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, who is the promised Messiah, heals him, and the man can suddenly speak and can suddenly see. Now verse 23 says, And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? And depending on what Bible you're reading, it might be worded in a more negative way. It might um, be, be worded in such a way that implies some skepticism. And the reason it's worded that way, because in the original language, that, that's kind of the, the idea. So 
Um, maybe it could be read in tone like this, verse 23. And the people were amazed, so they were like, wow, this is a big deal. This guy was blind, he couldn't speak, he can see, he can talk. Can this be, can this really be the one? Like, it's, it's well, maybe this is the one, but I'm not sure if it's really the one. Because if he's the one, he's not as kingly as I thought he would be. And so there's some doubt and skepticism. It, it reminds me of, um, if you've ever watched the Antique Roadshow, um, it's, it's not an exciting show for some people, but my son Adam and I, we, we love it. So the uglier the item, the idea is somebody brings an item, some obscure thing, the uglier and weirder it looks, it seems like the more value it seems to have. And so the, the drama, if there's drama in the show, is when you find out that something somebody bought for five bucks or found in an attic is worth thousands or tens of thousands or over a hundred thousand. But oftentimes, we're, we're watching and we're kind of like the skeptics, like, ah, that, it's probably fake. It's probably not worth anything. So that's kind of the tone. This could be the one, this could be the Messiah, but probably not. The crowd was curious, they were intrigued, but they didn't go all in with Jesus. They didn't necessarily pledge their full allegiance to him. They recognized, well, he just did a miracle. We don't really have a category for that, but we're intrigued. However, the religious leaders, they were not intrigued at all. Look at verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by... Beelzebul, Satan, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. In other words, the Pharisees were, as, as Jesus' ministry has gone on and has grown, and they've, they've seen things and they've heard him teach, their faith hasn't grown at all. Their hardness of heart has only hardened all the more. And so when Jesus did this miracle, they tell the crowd, he didn't really do this because he's God. He did it because he's doing it under the power of demons. And so Jesus is going to say that is a ridiculous claim. The Pharisees in this setting, they kind of remind me of when you're at an airport and the, the TSA agents are watching you. And what's their job? Their job is to make sure no illegal things are happening, nobody's being smuggled, no substances are being smuggled. They're not warm and friendly. They're staring and looking and examining, and you feel that as you're walking through long lines, especially during holiday season when it's, when it's, when it's crowded. They, they kind of have a scowl about them. That's, that's how the Pharisees seem to be um, thinking about Jesus. Or maybe another picture would be this. If you're familiar with um, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, there's a line in her book about Mr. Darcy, one of the main characters, and she writes this, Mr. Darcy, who never looks at any woman but to see a blemish. Who never looks at any woman but to see a blemish. The Pharisees, they never looked at Jesus but to see a blemish, but to bring fault. And so a miracle has happened. A man has been completely restored in sight and in speech. And they say, you have a demon. Look at verse 25. Jesus is going to skillfully refute their ridiculous, illogical claim. Knowing their thoughts, so they said this to other people, but Jesus is God, so he actually knows their thoughts, and he said this to them. 
Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if he casts out demons by... Another word that I'm getting stuck on. By Satan... By whom do your sons cast them out? Side note, there, when we preach, sometimes certain words that you can say at 9.30 and you can say at 12, you can't say in this little window of time. So I learned to just jump over them. Um, his point is this. That's a dumb argument, Pharisees. If Satan really wants to conquer and destroy, then he's not going to fight against himself. So why would Satan... Um, fight against a demon that works for Satan. He's like, that is an illogical tactic. No one would do that. And so that's argument number one. Then he says, now, now think about this, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes. Some of your own Jewish religious leaders have cast demons out of people. How did they do that? That's what he's saying um, in verse 27. Um, by whom did your sons, the Jewish people, cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judge. So he's, he's poking holes in their, their, their really weak claim. But their weak claim is influencing people or attempting to influence people to not trust in Jesus. That's why it's such a big deal. Look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons... Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he's saying to Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and to us, hey, if these guys are wrong, and I have in fact not just this man healed, but lepers and even dead people like Lazarus I've called out of the grave, and I've done it through the, the Spirit of God, if that really has happened, then the kingdom of God is here. See, when Jesus came to earth, he inaugurated the kingdom of God in the introduction of his ministry. And what we're going to see throughout this chapter is there is no room for neutral. Just like the Civil War, there was no neutral. You couldn't say, I'm indifferent. You're either on this side or you're on that side. That's what Jesus is pushing for. Look at verse 29. But he's not done refuting their argument and claim that he is doing things by the power of demons. Verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, Jesus' ministry, he came to set the captives free. He came to set people who are enslaved to all kinds of sinful passions and desires free. He came to set free those who were possessed by demons, like the, the, the man we find in the book of Mark who's living in a graveyard and he's homeless. And he's a harm to himself and to others. And Jesus shows up in power and he sets him free. He said, in order to do that, you got to plunder the strong man. In this, this account, the strong man is Satan and his minions. Got to go after them so we can set the people free. That was part of Jesus' ministry. Verse 30. Now this is where, if there's a line in the sand and, and it's decision time, Jesus is going to draw the line. Look at verse 30. 
Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he's drawing the line. You're either on this side or on this side. And so that's important for all of us to know what side are we on. Are we with Jesus, trusting in Him that He is fully God, fully man, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave on the third day, ascended in heaven, and one day will come back for us? Or are we indifferent? See, sometimes I think we like to kind of hang out in what we think is a neutral territory. But he's saying there is no neutral territory. If you're not for me, you're against me. And then he says, this is one evidence that you're for Jesus. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. One evidence that you're with Jesus is you really believe heaven and hell are real and Jesus is the hope and the answer. And so you want to share that and you want to gather. You want to pull people into it. Last night we had a, a, a meeting here, a worship time of thanksgiving and testimony. And one of the college students who's here this morning, she shared that um, just how her faith has even grown more since she's been at IUP. And she just wants to tell everybody about Jesus. See, the line in the sand has been drawn and she is clearly a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And one of the evidences is she wants others to come in. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. See, our belief and trust in Jesus is paramount of first importance. Do we really believe this? And this is true not just in the initial moment where you become a Christian, but as life goes on. Do I still believe and trust and have confidence in Jesus as revealed in the Bible? Okay, next we're going to look at one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament. Just to give you a heads up. Look at verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven for people. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. So let's kind of walk through this a little bit. Let's tackle the easiest part first, which is the very first part. Verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why the word gospel means good news. That's why we want to share the good news of Jesus. Because no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, if you own that sin and turn to Jesus, you can be forgiven. That's that's what it says. Every sin and blasphemy. I mean, think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was speaking against King Jesus. And I was forgiven. Think of Peter, who denied he even knew Jesus for a moment when Jesus was arrested. He was forgiven and restored and and set in as one of the premier apostles and a writer of Scripture. Think of all the other 
people we meet in the Bible. We see those who have committed adultery forgiven, prostitutes forgiven and restored. We see the thief on the cross who never, if you think about this, he never ever went to a Christian gathering, never read the Bible, probably never prayed to that moment he suspended on the cross beside Jesus. And most likely, he wasn't just a thief, but he was most likely, uh, the, your, your Bible might say robber, but what's implied there is most likely they beat people up. Sometimes those people died. So he could have been a murderer as well. He was a very bad man. And he turned to Jesus in faith at that last moment. And Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise. So that's the clear good news of the gospel. So what do we do with, with this idea of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 32 again. Or, or the second part of verse 31 into 32. But then he says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Yikes. So what do we do with that? A a really good um, Bible principle in studying the Bible is let what is clear interpret what is unclear. Another good rule is let the context inform the meaning. So the immediate context, what comes before, what comes after, the broader context, the moment in uh, New Testament history in this case, all of those things come into mind. So here's, here's my best summary of it, and you, you need to wrestle through this as well. So I'm going to tell you what I think, and then I'm going to read a quote from the New King James Study Bible that I think really summarizes it, it's well, it well. He's aiming particularly at the Pharisees when he's saying this. And they're to be the teachers of the law. They have the Old Testament. So they, they know the Word. They know the promises of the Messiah when He would come. And Jesus is fulfilling those. He's been teaching that and pointing that out to them. They have watched Him heal people over and over again and restore what is broken and, and bring it back to life and wholeness. Not only have they rejected that He is the promised Messiah, but they're ascribing all His miracles to Satan himself. And so, I think that's what He means when He's saying, do not cause blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this is how the New King James Study Bible says it. The sin which will not be forgiven is the stubborn refusal to heed the Holy Spirit's conviction and accept the forgiveness that Christ offers. Particularly in reference to the leaders of Israel, Jesus had offered them all the proof that could be expected. The ministry of John, that's John the Baptist. The testimony of the Father. God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism, and many were there. The prophecies of the Old Testament, how he fulfills those. His own testimony and the substantiation of the Holy Spirit Because the leaders rejected all proofs regarding Jesus as Messiah, nothing else would be given. And so their hearts were like granite. They were hard towards the Lord. 
Now, that doesn't mean none of the Pharisees ever came to faith. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He came to faith. Nicodemus, we don't know if he became a Christian, but he certainly was drawn to Jesus. And he says in John 3, we, we know you, you're sent from God because of what you do. So not all of them were in the same group, but those who were so hardened and rejecting who Jesus was. That, I think, is what Matthew is aiming at. You can wrestle through that. But so that we don't get caught in the weeds, keep in mind the context is Jesus is really asking a simple question. Are you with me or are you against me? Do you trust in me or do you trust in someone or something else? One of the ways we know what we trust in is what comes out of our mouth, which brings us to the second point. Our words reveal where our true allegiance lies. He's going to use a, a common analogy. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruits good, or make the tree bad and its fruits bad. For the tree is known by his fruits. Now, what he's going to say next isn't Jesus meek and mild. He's talking to the self-righteous religious leaders. You brood of vipers. You slimy snakes, he's saying. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. That might seem harsh. That might seem strong. But Jesus knew that they were leading or attempting to lead people away from God's remedy for their human condition, the sinfulness of man. And he knew that a judgment is coming. See, when Jesus comes back again, it says, triumphant king to gather his people. And he wants to gather as many as he can. But it's a big deal when people lead others away from Jesus. It's a really, really big deal. So whether they're serpents or snakes or seemingly very well-spoken, articulate TikTok videos that in 30 seconds undermine the entirety of the Christian faith, that's a really big deal. And so we don't want to be influenced by false teachers who are saying something that is not true about Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And whether they are the Pharisees hiding under the religious garments of the Old Testament, or they are modern-day people that grew up in a Christian church and now have turned out of it and rejected Jesus and are seeking to influence many, many people to do the same. That is a really big deal. Just like the Civil War, there's no middle. There's no nice enemy of Jesus. And that's kind of his point. He wants us to know 
and put our absolute trust and allegiance to Him. No matter what happens. Sadly, many walk away from Jesus because of churches. Because of, let's say, the church universe or church local where Christians or those who aren't even Christians do things under the name of Jesus that cause harm. That's a really big deal. That's a sad reality. But that's not Jesus. And we don't want to blame that on Jesus. And we certainly don't want to run away from Jesus because we had a bad experience with a Christian. If you just met Jesus, you're going to have a bad experience with a Christian. You're most likely going to be a bad experience of a Christian to someone else at some time. We, we live on both sides of that. But Jesus is absolutely perfect and trustworthy. And one of my prayers for this sermon is that your resolve would grow to trust in Jesus. Your confidence would grow. As culture becomes more volatile to, to Christianity, maybe in our, our day and age, as, as the stakes get a little higher for Christians living in the United States, be confident that Jesus is truly who he says he is. And you can trust him. You can rest in him. You can go to him. Last night, Janice, who's over here to my left, shared about how thankful she was for her salvation. She met Jesus at the age of five. Somebody invited her to a Sunday school class. Her mom was not a believer, a follower of Jesus. And she heard the song, Jesus Loves Me, and her heart was warmed and awakened. She's now 84 years old. And she exhorted everybody that, that Jesus is so worth it, so trustworthy. And then she, she also, Janice, you said, you know, life hasn't always been easy. Well, that's a, she's lived a long life. So that life hasn't been easy. You can imagine there's been some real challenges. But Jesus, she said, has always, always, always been faithful. You can trust him. So, one of the ways we know we trust him is by what comes out of our mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Next, we will see recognizing Jesus' true identity is vital to our salvation. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They didn't really wish to see a sign. They've seen many signs from him. But he's wise. Listen to what he says. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jesus is about to say, one far greater than Jonah has come. And just like Jonah was in the fish for his rebellion, I've been perfect, Jesus is saying. And my three nights and three days is going to be, I'm going to die on the cross to save all those who will look to me, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. Then he says this, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They, they repented because Jonah warned them. Even did it reluctantly. He tried to run away from that call. But he did warn them, and they did respond. And if you study who they were, they were an evil, wicked people. That's one of the reasons Jonah didn't want to go to them. And they responded. And God heard their prayers. And now Jesus is saying, something far greater is here. And you are still rejecting Jesus. So that the people of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater, you could say, far greater than Jonah is here. See, Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and we're going to see right now, king. Look at verse 42. And the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So she came, you can read this in, I believe, the book of Kings. She came a long distance with a great group of people because of the word had gotten out how wise King Solomon was. She went to see him. And she was even more amazed and more surprised in a good way when she saw it with her own eyes. And he's saying something greater than Solomon is here. Something far, far, far greater. Someone far greater. Jesus himself has come. So if the people of Nineveh would stand up in judgment and the people of Jesus' day are being held to a stricter judgment, how much more so people that live in our day and age when we have in every form imaginable these precious 66 books of the Bible inspired by the Lord to teach us how to know Jesus Christ. It's a treasure and it's a gift, but we are accountable if we reject it and turn from it. Which brings us to the next point. Rejection of Jesus has grave consequences. It's a really big deal. When the unclean spirits has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which it came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. So, unclean spirits come. They get chased out. Everything's tidy, but then look what happens. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And as they enter and dwell there, the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be in this evil generation. In other words, Jesus is speaking to a large crowd. And he's saying, I've come. I've cast out demons. I've scattered. I've brought salvation to those who would look to me. I've restored broken relationships. But if you do not put your allegiance in me alone, like if you're going to try to live in this neutral spot and be a a fair-weather follower of me, it's going to be worse. Because I'm not going to be your king to protect you. I'm not going to be your savior to watch over you. I'm not going to be the good shepherd who, who chases after you when you stray. 
I only do that for those who know me. And I'm inviting you to know me. But if you reject me, you need to know how serious it is, Jesus says. So it will also be with this evil generation. One of the things that I appreciate about Matthew chapter 12 is the great clarity of language that Jesus uses. It's very black and white. It's very good and evil. There's not this this safe middle that that rejects Jesus. It, It does not exist. And so if you're in that middle, my prayer is that you wouldn't remain in that middle. There is abundant life for you that Jesus offers. But it's going to be costly. When I trusted in Jesus as a 19-year-old IUP student, I left my entire friend group. They were all partiers. And and I knew if I'm really going to follow Jesus, I can't straddle this fence at all. It was costly. It was lonely initially. But it was right, and it was good. And just like Janice, nobody was talking me out of Jesus. His love for me wasn't real. But we all have to have that moment. And at times in our lives, we have to have that recommitment moment that, Lord, my grasp is is getting weak. I need you to strengthen me. I need you to, to help me. I'm getting confused about you. I'm getting confused about your word. Give me a great resolve. Bring other older Christians into my life to help me and talk through this with me. But make no mistake, rejection of Jesus has grave consequences. In some Christian circles right now, it is trendy to reject Jesus. That is a big deal. We do not want to meet God face to face say I I rejected your salvation I rejected your son that you sent out of love for me for me there's nothing bigger and, and more severe than to reject Jesus Christ it's a really big deal last point final point All is not hopeless. This is why he came. Jesus offers salvation and adoption brings you into his family to all who trust in him. Verse 46 says, While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother, we know her as Mary, and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now this can seem like immediately a little harsh. Like we have that impulse, oh man, that's Mary. Don't don't, don't be doing that to your mom, Jesus. But, But his point is this. It's not a slam on Mary. He loved his mom. We know that because even when he was dying on the cross, he made sure his good friend John would care for his mom the rest of her days. So he loved his his mom. He loved his siblings. 
But the offer is anyone who trusts in me, anyone who calls on my name, they're my family. They're my brothers and sisters. See, God not only offers the forgiveness of sins when we trust in Jesus, when we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. He not only makes us new from the inside out, causes us to be born again. He not only guarantees that we will live eternally with Him, but He makes us family. He brings us in close. Just like, I mean, Thanksgiving's coming in a few weeks. You're going to be around tables with family members. It's, it's, it's a, a family thing. This is shocking to me. This, was, this will always be shocking to me. So no matter who you are, you could do all kinds of wild things in unbelief. Then one day you, you suddenly realize, I, like David did, I, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you, Lord. You own your sin. You turn from your sin. You turn to Jesus. And he doesn't just clean the slate. He doesn't just declare you righteous. Oh, come, come to my table. Come to my family. You are in. You are a co-inheritor with me. What I have is yours. And you are in forever. See, that's the beautiful offer of salvation. That's why on the positive end, with this line in the sand, you don't want to try to straddle it. You want to be all in with Jesus. Fully committed. Even if everybody you know turns away from Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I trust in you, Jesus. I want to follow you anywhere you will lead Jesus. And there will be times, just like during the Civil War, where friends and family will go different directions. And you have to make a costly decision. One of the other things Janice shared last night was at the age of 11, her mom, who didn't know the Lord, was threatening not letting her go to Sunday school class anymore, not going to church. And she wanted to honor her mom. But she said, no matter what happened, I'm going to follow Jesus. She took a stand, and then her mom allowed her to go. There will be many moments in your life where that will happen. There might be moments in, in, in class where you have to take a stand for Jesus. And you know you are in the huge minority or in the workplace or at the Thanksgiving dinner table. Never be ashamed of Jesus. He is for you. He loves you. He rescued you. He's going to watch over you. But you need to come to Him. And let us be bold brothers and sisters of Jesus who are seeking to gather many, many, many more into His kingdom so that they can know Him and they can enjoy Him. Let's all stand if the band can come up. We're going to sing a final song, and it really is a response song. So make it a fresh resolve that, Jesus, I am all in to follow you. And maybe for some of you, that's the first time you've ever called out to Jesus, and he will respond. So let's pray.
Holy Spirit, we pray you would warm and stir hearts right now. Lord, we pray that our affections would be awakened. That you would do something in this moment that would carry into the future that we are so clear about the truthfulness of who Jesus is and the importance of of pledging our whole allegiance completely to him. No matter what comes, no matter what it costs. And Holy Spirit, thank you. You're the one that will help us and you're the one that will empower us. And we will give you all the praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.